if I was talking to the younger me, I would say, I would say, um, it sounds cliche, but honestly, just, just follow your dreams. Don't let the, the stress and the, just the, the shit that no one cares about. Don't let that, uh, don't let that impact you as a person and don't let it change your future. Honestly, just be yourself. This is Micah. You're listening to Breaking the Boy Code. I was talking about this podcast with someone uh, the other day that thought it was like more about like dramatic life events. Which is fine, but we don't have to be talking about seismic changes to be, you know, recognizing the ground underneath boys' feet. Every single boy has an inner life. It's as simple as that. So in this episode, Michael really is just talking about life. He talks about stress, he talks about mental health, body image, friends, and it's really just, I guess, him offering a glimpse of his life as he's gone from pre-adolescence to adolescence. He's in the midst of it. So this is 14-year-old Michael. For as long as I can remember, I've been stressed about friends, grades, being myself, making people proud, fitting in, staying in shape, my future, a lot of stuff. Usually the stress wasn't that bad. It was just an extra motivation to get me to do my best. I was an otherwise pretty happy kid, and um, about four years ago, that changed. Homework started piling up. My grades started to slowly go down. The stress became really unhealthy. It stopped motivating me. It started overwhelming me. It kind of took over my life. I'd come home and spend four hours doing homework something I still have to do to maintain decent grades. This, this all took a toll on my social life and my physical health. I even began to develop an eating disorder, which I still have to battle to, with to this day. Definitely the adults, the, the adults in my life definitely noticed when I stopped eating, I, I started eating less. I um, lost a lot of weight. I just became much more of an unhappy person. Um, I wasn't fun to be around. I didn't enjoy being around other people either. Um, I just felt like my life was a mess. And people in my life, if they didn't notice it, they they really, well, they definitely did notice it. Um, It is really painful almost to see my life almost crumbling. because of this schoolwork or my friends or something that was just stressing me out so much that I couldn't be who I wanted to be. Um, and it was really just painful. To, it's painful to think about now. It's painful to go through then. I'm still going through it. Um, but I've gotten better at balancing my life and at least you know, spending a little bit of time with my friends as well as having a decent grade. Um, the point is, the stress was hurting me and I couldn't find a way to relieve it. Recently, I broke my leg and because of that, I missed several weeks of school. 
and missed like a ton of schoolwork. And um, so it, the schoolwork and homework kept accumulating. And uh, it was there to the point where even with my broken leg, I was working about seven hours a day, which is even more than a school day because during the school day, I have a lunch break or something to, to make the day less painful, stressful. But at home, it was horrible. Um, I couldn't figure out how to relieve my stress because of the broken leg. Um, I, I basically couldn't work out like I'm used to doing to relieve my stress. Um, so I had to rely on things like meditation or just talking with my friends when they'd come over. That helped me relieve a lot of stress. Um, but I felt like I wasn't strong, like I was a failure. And because of that, I lost a lot of self-esteem. And uh, I just couldn't focus on the work that was presented to me because my mind was so scattered and I just couldn't focus. Um, but all of this is happening, more and more work is accumulating, even though I'm actively trying to get it done. But eventually I did have to return to school and I really wasn't prepared, so it just gave me more stress when I had to focus on the schoolwork that was happening now and schoolwork that I hadn't done yet that was um, due before. But after school one day, um, a couple weeks ago, I just broke down, spent the entire evening in my room, um, and it was just uh, a horrible night. I didn't sleep. I just kind of yelled at myself, cried a little bit. Um, it was just, yeah, that night. And it's basically, it was because I was internalizing my feelings. I, I basically, a decade of stress build up and um, just emotion that I hadn't expressed much just came out on that one night. And after that, I knew that I had to change something. So I meditated a lot, um, probably in seventh grade. And I stopped. A I basically didn't meditate. Um, but I needed a stress reliever. So I, there's a feature on my Fitbit. Um, just the most random thing. I don't know why it's on there. Because it's an activity tracker. But it's there. And... Um, it it helps you relax. It's called the relax feature, but it's basically meditating. You just clear your mind, and it instructs you on how to breathe. And doing that um, for five minutes twice a day, um, I don't want to say it's changed my life because it hasn't been that transformative, but it's definitely helped in a very significant way, meditating. And it's not necessarily a outlet but it at least calms me in the moment and makes me feel a lot better i learned how to meditate uh, <laughs> by watching parks and recreation on netflix um of all reasons and um uh chris traeger who's played by rob Lowe, um is this really active guy who's got a great personality but like he meditates and he explains how he does it like he just clears his mind he is actively trying not to think about things. In like one of the episodes, 
where he makes another main character come along with him to like an area where he was meditating. So I just watched it and I thought this seems really cool. Um, I'm going to try this because obviously he wasn't a real person. He's just a, um, a, a fictional character, but I thought maybe it would work. Um, and I give it a try. Uh, and it was just, it's cleansing almost, um, just to not worry about anything and to have your mind so clear and to get rid of the distractions of the world. Um, and I don't, I don't, maybe that's not how you meditate, but that's how I've been doing it. And it really, um, it, it works for me. Um, so thanks to Parks and Recreation, I have a good reliever for my stress. That is fascinating, isn't it? I really hope it's not just me that thinks this is totally interesting. It's an image of what it looks like to be an adolescent in 2018. I was going to say an adolescent in the 21st century, but especially like we're almost at like to, to, to like adolescence 2020. He's got stress and he gets the practice that helps him deal with that mental health from media. So he's looking around himself. He's looking at the internet. He's looking at like social media. He's looking at TV shows and he gets something there that he thinks he's going to use. Then he uses, again, more technology as a tool to help him build that practice. It's a reminder that elements of adolescence are constantly changing. And as adults, we've got to remember that they're navigating a world that we ne don't necessarily know as well as we think we do. Like, do you know, okay, well, do you know how significant Instagram likes are to a 14-year-old today? Or I think about the fact that as I'm bicycling around Toronto these days, you can smell, like, you can smell marijuana like a couple times in a couple kilometers. And what is it like to be a teenager growing up in a world where weed is legal? not just in Canada, but in different states. Or um, I was thinking about this when I turned on the microphone. Uh, I had a kid text me a picture of a rotary phone the other day. I was like, what is this? I was like, it's a phone. And then he texts me back later and uh, like swears. And he's like, I can't fucking use this. Um, the point is we've got to be constantly learning about their context. Beyond, I'm not really, this is not really, the rotary phone was a digression. We're going to be learning about their context because there are constants that we know they are going to experience. Like there are things that don't change. We know they're going to experience stress in school. We know they're going to experience confusion about relationships. We know there's going to be uncertainty about their identities because that's what being an adolescent has always looked like. So there's value in learning about what we don't know so we can help them more effectively with what we do know. Michael and I went from talking about his experience of stress to talking about school. And he really sort of came down on how constricting it, it feels. And one of the things that he said is that it's important to remember that just because you want a student to work or you want to identify them as a student who has work to do doesn't mean that they don't have other lives. They have, for example, friends that they got to focus on. They have themselves to focus on. I think that some of the most beloved teachers that I have known myself and known as colleagues are the teachers that remember this. In my eyes, I think that the education system puts way too much pressure on students. Um, just so much. Um, like homework, like I said, hours every night. Um, 
was crazy and just excessive to the point where it was doing no good at all. Like, no one was experiencing growth from it. It was just busy work. Not even to reinforce what we learned. Um, because it wasn't. It was just a waste of time that if we didn't do, was going to drop our grades. So at least for my class in my school, that in, in my area, that's what the education, I think it was very flawed, um, the system. Um, but as a parent or an educator, I think it's important to remember that just because a student is smart doesn't mean, or you want them to work, doesn't mean that they don't have other lives, um, that they don't have friends that they need to focus on or themselves that they need to focus on. To, because um, honestly, a lot of parents and educators do forget that. And um, it kind of sucks because then the kids um, and teenagers are the ones who are suffering from that. So what does it mean for teenagers to focus on themselves? What are we really getting at here? I want to draw this out because people sometimes think youth are too focused on themselves. There's this sort of like anti-youth nostalgia of like, well, look at that Nike shoes, look at that Snapchat filter and, and see self-obsession where you might otherwise see self-exploration. And I think it's worth drawing this out because if we want to raise young men who are committed to equity, who are ending cultures of harm, who are ending violence against women, I'd argue that those young men have to start by exploring themselves in order to come to that work with authenticity, to come to it with vulnerability and clarity in who they want to be. I'd say that's what I've heard from every single man who does this kind of thing with some sort of moment of realization of like, okay, this is how I identify. This is what I want my manhood to be about. This is a quote that I have kept saved. I don't, it's not hundred percent relevant to masculinity, but I keep coming back to it and I'll share it. It's from Joan Halifax. She said, all too often our so-called strength comes from fear, not love. Instead of having a strong back, many of us have a defended front shielding a weak spine. In other words, we walk around brittle and defensive, trying to conceal our lack of confidence. If we strengthen our backs, metaphorically speaking, and develop a spine that is flexible but sturdy, then we can risk having a front that's soft and open, representing choiceless compassion. The place in your body where these two meet, strong back and soft front, is the brave, tender ground in which to root our caring deeply. Like I said, I might, I might come back to that because it's just such a thought-provoking perspective on where do you root your caring so michael's like look i mean he's not even he's not talking about <laughs> he's not just talking about like justice right or ending violence against women but he's like look i want to be genuine i want to be myself but i don't really know who i am yet i'm a very genuine well i, tr I try to be the most genuine person i can be um and i feel like as a young person, I don't know, I don't really know who I am yet. So it's hard for me to do that unless I'm given that time to, you know, explore that. Um, so that's why I think it's important because you don't really know at, at this stage in life, 
myself and I'm sure a lot of people my age are still trying to figure out who they are. Still um, just, just trying to make friends. A good friend can can be a, a huge difference. Um, even a, a, a handshake, a pat on the shoulder from a, a, a good friend you trust. That can make the difference um, between someone who's, you know, for someone who's going through a lot, like most high schoolers are, to go through that without other people, and in in the college, like I said, um, if you don't if you don't have people to to back you up to, to be there for you, then it's really just even more hopeless and miserable than it needs to be. So that's why it's important. As far as stress goes, um, I probably did most of that on my own. Although I had a lot of good friends who came and uh, like I have one good friend who helped me finish um, the homework that I had no idea how to do because I missed, you know, the lesson when we learned it. Um, and then I had friends who just came to talk with me because that's all I really needed, you know, um, a get well card and a lot of um, a lot of sympathy and just hanging out with the people that, you know, I enjoy being around. Um, so the stress was helped by them, but it was also kind of a thing that partially I had to go through on my own and uh, deal with that. Friendship matters. I'm sure that's going to be an echoing theme in this podcast. That's what we said last episode with Naomi Way and Sebastian, that boys value their friendships and at this specific age are very articulate about how important those friendships are to their mental health. Which is what Michael just said. But he also said, in terms of my mental health, there's stuff I got to figure out on my own. And I got to figure it out through reflection, through self-analysis, through processing uh, experiences and processing my own identity. But here's a distinction. Introspection does not mean isolation. You can figure that out on your own and still remain connected. But how do you have a conversation like that as a boy? How do you bring up mental health stress? Like, I feel like I'm not strong. I feel like I can't get to who I want to be. It's a, a little more than you, you would put on a get well soon card, to put it lightly. So again, building off of previous episodes, this isn't something that boys need to be taught as much as something that boys need to be given the space for. To explore that further, I reached out to Phyllis Fagel, a counselor at Sheridan College in Washington, D.C. So I am a school counselor at a K-8 school in Washington, D.C., where the boys in the middle school were really interested in having a safe space where they could talk about things that mattered to them, a place where they wouldn't be judged, a place where they could say, make the kind of comments or observations about what it means to be a boy that they might not otherwise feel comfortable saying in, out in the real world or even out in the rest of the school community. They had the advantage of being in school from a very young age together. They were very comfortable uh, confiding, confiding in one another. So it really stood out for me that they too felt like they needed this safe space to actually express their feelings in a way that reflected them in an authentically as opposed to what society expected 
them to feel, say, and share with each other. And that extended to friendship, to academics, to athletics. They really, over the course of the last year and a half, have talked about every topic you could imagine. And I've been impressed by their wisdom and how perceptive they are and also what a keen sense they have of what society's expectations for them are. If you ask them a question about what it means to be a boy, there's really almost full agreement on everything. There's no hesitation. They'll just jump right in and and share what they think they can and can't be. And they feel like they want to push back against that. They feel like they want to not only be able to be whoever they want to be, but also to help younger boys in the school uh, do the same thing. This is something they see as a, as a bigger mission, and uh, part of what they're trying to do is some advocacy work as well. We had a student in the second grade who mentioned to me that he was feeling like he was losing his confidence, and he was pretty upset about it, and when I asked him what he meant, he said that in second grade, boys suddenly start to realize that the way to behave the things they say, whether or not they want to arm wrestle with a friend or whether or not they want to show that they're upset about something or that someone something has done is bothering them, suddenly they're much more self-conscious about sharing those observations, about sharing those feelings. And what struck me as I talked to this second grade boy is that he was reflecting exactly what the boys had been saying in boys' group, down to the fact that they were able to say they started experiencing those feelings of not being able to be authentic back in second or third grade. And I went back to the boys' group, and I said, listen, there's this kid, he's in second grade, and he really is saying the same things you are, and I'd like to bring him in as a guest speaker to maybe problem-solve with you a little bit and what you think about that. They love the idea. The second-grade boy loves the idea. So he came to boys' group one day, and... The, and shared with them what he shared with me. And the older kids listened very respectfully. They were impressed. I think one of them said he was the smartest seven-year-old boy they had ever met. And they said to this little boy, we want to help. What can we do? And the boy said, develop relationships with us. Come get to know us. Play Uno with us. Read to us. And just be out on the playground or be in the lunchroom and make it okay for us to say the kinds of things we'd like to say to each other. And I think that that really set the wheels in motion for the older boys wanting to make a difference in the lives of these younger children. And so that same boy is going to come back again and they're going to continue to collaborate. We happen to be in a school where there's already buddy programs and mentoring programs, not necessarily boy-boy. So there is a culture that supports that kind of interaction, but this is a very specific, targeted initiative that the boys themselves are going to spearhead, and I think it's it's a work in progress. I think part of the brainstorming is the boys talking and meeting with the younger boys and getting a sense of what they can do to help them feel like they can maybe grow up being a more expressive boy who can access a fuller spectrum of their emotions or at least express it publicly in a way that they might not otherwise do. And my current boys group feels like this is an opportunity for them to really make a mark, to to make a difference, and to have a legacy. So in addition to just meeting their own needs and having the kinds of authentic friendships that are important to them, they'd really like to make a difference in the lives of the younger boys in the school and, and out in society as a whole. But I think often the best way to start is local, and it doesn't get more local than the little kids in your own building. 
Phyllis has a group of middle schoolers, age 12 and 13, and they've created this space together. Andrew Reiner just wrote an article about her work in the New York Times, and in that article, he points out this program is part of a vanguard of programs across the country, where educators and coaches, parents, volunteers are teaching boys especially about the ways to recognize and prevent sexual and gendered violence. This kind of thing is really coming to light in the wake of the Trump administration and the wake of the Me Too movement. But I will say that in my experience and from what I've heard from other people doing this work, the main reason that boys choose to be at the programs isn't necessarily ending gendered violence. This is really illustrated by a photo uh, captioned in that article in the New York Times. The, the caption is a boy saying, this is the one place where I feel safe. I leave this group feeling better about being in school because I know that I'm not so alone about the things that worry me so much. I'm not alone. So what does this mean in the context of Michael's experience? You know, I, when I talk to kids about coping strategies, I usually refer to it in terms of building a toolbox of having different kinds of coping strategies they can access depending on the situation. And it's going to be different for everybody. Somebody might need to go for a run. Somebody might need to meditate or do some deep breathing. Somebody else might need to read or listen to music, and that's true for boys and girls. And one way that girls really figure out what works for them is that they talk about these issues and they share with each other what they're doing to relax or to unwind, and they talk about their stress, and they talk about what's bothering them, and they crowdsource, and they also have a shoulder to lean on. I don't think boys as readily do that with each other, and when you have a space where you have a room full of boys talking about what's on their mind, for starters, you're normalizing whatever their stress is. And that in and of itself is therapeutic to know that whatever you're going through as an adolescent boy is normal, is something that seven other people in the room are also experiencing. And then they can talk together about what they're doing about it and what helps them feel better in addition to just talking to each other. And and have that same kind of crowdsourcing that girls have a bit of an easier time doing with each other. Giving boys space to talk together about what they're experiencing Uh, in broad strokes, does two things. Number one, it lets them normalize. It's not just me that's going through this. It's normal to go through this. It also lets them, number two, crowdsource. This is what works for you. I'm going to try it. Well, as cool as it is that Michael built a strategy for his mental health from Netflix and a Fitbit app, we can do better than that. Right? And these groups offer something unique or something special because if we th- like if you really think about it the people that are watching a kid like Michael expecting him to succeed or the people that he thinks want him to succeed like his teacher like his parents those are not really the people with whom he's going to be most comfortable sharing about feeling like a failure lots of people that have high expectations for themselves or that experience high expectations from others feel that kind of isolation so when he's got a chance like when he's got a space where he can talk about those things like they can at Sheridan College, he gets a chance to build resilience, to build compassion. He gets a chance for that exploration. So he can do introspection, but do it in connection with other boys. That's the kind of experience that will help him and help boys like him grow into a more positive masculinity. So my goal with boys that I work with is the same as my goal for the girls that I work with. I want them to have confidence. I want them to feel like they can be authentic 
their authentic selves. I want them to treat themselves with self-compassion. I want them to be respectful to others. I want them to be healthy emotionally. I want them to feel like they can explore their interests and take risks and that it's okay to make mistakes. I want them to have solid friendships and to be able to build trusting bonds. I want them to be able to resolve conflict. I want them to be resilient. I want them to be able to manage uncertainty. I want them to know how to seek help. And I want them to know how to take care of their bodies and their minds and their emotions and to go into high school really with that toolbox of coping strategies and the ability to understand their own needs, to have that self-awareness, and also to be really cognizant of other people's needs and to be respectful and sensitive to anyone else whose paths they cross as they go through adolescence and become adults. That was a fun question to ask Phyllis. I was like, so what's the possible future for these boys as they move on into high school or move on to adolescence and, and grow up? And she was like, boom, self-compassion, boom, solid friendships, boom, resilience, boom, awareness of others' needs. There was no hesitation. And there was no script either. It was just a really clear vision for her students. So let's say you have a clear vision for the boys in your life. You know the direction you want them to go. What's stopping you? And also, if you're an educator or you're working in a school, what do you need to know to make that kind of space happen? I think that what's confusing to educators about dealing with boys this age is that the way they express their discontent, the way they express not feeling great about themselves or needing more of a connection with peers or even with the adults in their lives often can be off-putting. They might act out. They might call out random things in class. They might be disruptive. They might goof off. They might shut down completely. And so sometimes what is a cry for help can look very much like oppositional behavior and can actually make educators want to push them away. But I would argue that those behaviors are uh, an indication that those boys need more involvement and more support than other boys in the same age group. In terms of actually getting a group like this off the ground, I'm a big believer that it has to be voluntary. It has to be something that the boys want to do, that they, of their own initiative, would like to be a part of. No one should ever be forced to participate in a boys' group. And in an ideal world, it is something that the boys themselves initiate. An educator might have to float the idea. It might not be something that they've heard of. And one way to float the idea might be to share an article about boys' groups or to share some research about how boys like friendship, too, and also want loyal, trusting bonds, um, but to get the conversation started. And then once you have a group of boys who want to do it, you want to create some ground rules so that there's trust and confidentiality because they are seeking the safe space, and it's, it can feel like a real risk, especially if they're not accustomed to talking like that with each other outside the walls of the space where you're holding the group. So you want to create those ground rules about what what can and cannot be shared outside a boys' group. And then you want to come up with topics that are of interest to the boys themselves. And that might be not necessarily what an adult would would expect them to to want to talk about. I know that in my experience, boys have wanted to talk about the different threshold they have for sarcasm or whether or not they like roughhousing physically or how to handle a situation where they feel like people are putting too much pressure on them to be a certain way, and that might have to do with athletics or it might have to do with academics. Or they might want to talk about the fact that they have a real 
interest in an area that's not considered traditionally masculine or that they don't have an interest in an area that is, or that they have an interest in, or, or that they're feeling pressure to explore an area that is considered traditionally masculine but isn't necessarily up their alley. And offhand comments that they might not show bother them can actually sit with them and bother them for, for quite a long time. And boys groups are a space where they can share those feelings, talk to other boys, find out that maybe the other boys have had the same reaction. Maybe other boys also really love, you know, reading and don't feel like they could talk about the book they love somewhere else. But whatever it happens to be, um, you know, you want to create a space where the things that have been private concerns that they thought they were struggling with alone, they can have an opportunity to, to see that they're, they're far from alone. They're far from isolated. There are plenty of other kids who are, who are struggling with some of the same, same things. And some of it might be just developmental and age, and some of it might be more specific to growing up as a boy today. They learn that they're far from alone, far from isolated. There are plenty of other kids who are struggling with some of the same things. You see the value for boys like Michael, who said, right, Michael said at the start, I felt like I wasn't strong. I felt like a failure. I lost a lot of self-esteem. I couldn't focus because my bone was so scattered. Right. I broke down. Basically, he's like, basically, I was internalizing my feelings. He says this, right? I was internalizing my feelings. A decade of stress buildup and emotion that I hadn't expressed just came out. So you can see the value. The opportunity that Phyllis is offering for her boys is valuable for every single boy. There are two things that I want to address with the last part of this episode. The first is that Michael's expression of struggle was internalized. In a lot of ways, the harm that he enacted went inwards. Like he talked about self-esteem, about um, struggling with an eating disorder, about crying in his room. And it's worth pointing out that not every single boy expresses mental health struggles in this way. As Phyllis said, like boys might act out, they might be disruptive. And what is a cry for help might look very much like oppositional behavior. This is really similar to a quote uh, from William Pollack, who said, when boys' activities spiral into aggressiveness and violence, what they're often expressing is far from some sort of macho desire for power or vindication, but rather a longing to be nurtured, listened to, and understood. That might sound like a bit of a stretch, and you kind of have to read that part of the book to understand the context, but basically he's saying that because of the constraints that they are in, boys implicitly have limited ways to ask for help. They've limited ways to signal their need for love and attention. And we know that every single kid, right, needs love and attention. And when that ask looks like opposition or disruption or violence, we don't often do a good job of meeting it with compassion. Which brings me to the second point that I wanted to make, which is that different boys experience different levels of support. Inequity. To give you a rough, just like the briefest glimpse of what I'm talking about, some of the numbers from the last decade uh, in the Toronto District School Board. Black students make up just over 10% of the student population, but account for half of all expulsions. Black students are suspended at three times the rate of white students. Which reminded me of the Changing the Narrative podcast series 
where Samuel Amer talked about black men being three times as likely to die from the use of force by police than white men. Part of my, I don't know if you'd call it like a journalistic style or like the way I approach things is making connections. So it strikes me that that is the same statistic. Three times. Three times as likely to get suspended. Three times as likely to die. And this touches on things like the school-to-prison pipeline. It touches on police brutality, how boys get racialized in school and in our culture. And I don't want to digress too far from Michael's story. So I'll just say that it's something to think about. And to plant that seed in your mind, I want to spend a bit of time talking about Project NUMA. Project NUMA is in Baltimore, Maryland. It's one of the most violent cities in the United States. It's more violent than Chicago or New York City. In 2017, there were 342 reported homicides, and almost 90% of them were black. Same thing for kids under 18, teenagers and younger, who died by homicide in the last few years. 11 out of 12 were black, 9 out of 12, 14 out of 15, 19 out of 22, 14 out of 16, 9 out of 10, 12 out of 12. This is the environment in which Project NUMA operates. This is where they seek to broaden the possibilities for the young men that they serve. Uh, to quote from the website, to breathe new life by challenging them intellectually, strengthening them physically, nurturing them emotionally, and uplifting them spiritually. That's resistance. And that's particularly resistance in a place like Baltimore. An interesting connection for me is that a lot of what they do is what's working for Michael. Exercise, academic support, meditation, and mindfulness are all part of the Project NUMA program. Well, Project NUMA is a holistic program where we choose our young men through um, Baltimore City Public School System. Some of the young men who are having issues with impulse actions and things like that, those who are on the verge of falling off the cliff. What we've done is we've infused a group of young men uh, those young men with another group of young men who are doing exceptionally well to try to break up some of that groupthink mentality. Um, we combine different arts, uh, martial arts, yoga, uh, physical fitness, and uh, an exposure to these young men to bring them a whole new world of endless possibilities. My goal is to make sure our young men achieve. They get through high school, they get through college, and they come back and get back to our community. That's my goal. It's a goal not unlike Phyllis Fagel. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who is working with young people and doesn't want the best for them. You know, that's kind of a given. But I still think it's worth recognizing educators and mentors who know the context, who know the environment that their youth are in, are committed to working with youth in that environment, and particularly the educators and the mentors who are working with them uh, to influence that culture positively. That's what Project NUMA does. They say, I see you. One of the first things that I ever saw from Project NUMA was uh, a video from The Guardian where Damien Cooper's standing in front of a bunch of young black boys and he says, gentlemen, you're in a place where you are loved, surrounded by other men who care about you. Again, in a city that is one of the most violent in the United States. That stuck with me. Another thing that stuck with me is the story of how violence is part of how Project NUMA came to be. Well, in um, October of 1992, I was on my way home from college. I was a wrestler at Coppin State University. 
and back then I didn't have a car like I do now, and I was on the <laughs> on the bus, you know, trying to get home to get some get some food because I'm a hungry college kid. And as I'm walking home and in an area called Sinclair Lane, I didn't realize I was followed by two men. And as I got right beside uh, my door, about to go into my home, once I turned around, one of the two men shot me. Um, the bullet hit me above, hit me inch above the heart, ricocheted, cracked my sternum, ricocheted, broke through ribs, and ricocheted and lodged in the nerves under my right arm. And for four years, two months and 18 days, I became a very bitter and angry young man. I became the typical young man that people think they see in Baltimore, you know, just always angry and just never want to do anything right. It wasn't until after my four-year, two-month, and 18-day pity party that I realized I needed to forgive this young man for shooting me because he was holding enough power over me to stop me Mm. from graduating and doing great things in life. And once I did that, I understood that my calling was to help by any means necessary so another family wouldn't have to go through what my mother, my stepfather, and my sister had to go through when they had to watch their son and their brother um, bleeding to death in front of them. And while at the United Baptist College and Seminary, I partnered with uh, a chaplain uh, named Christopher Wallace, great guy, where I went to the Baltimore City um, pre-release center and helped him work with a lot of the inmates there. And during that time, I didn't realize I was working with the young man who had actually shot me back in October of 1992. So, <laughs> and it's weird that I'm trying my best not to get choked up now because it's really hard for me even to still think about it now. But once this happened, I had, to, I had to tell this young man to his face that I've been working with you for all these years and you shot me. And I had to listen to him walk me through the whole process of how he followed me from the number five bus down through Sinclair Elementary School, down Chesterfield Avenue, down Elmore Avenue, till we got to Lindell Avenue at Chesterfield. And until he turned around, he shot me. And during that time, he just knew me as Minister Cooper, this guy who's been helping him, but not the guy who had put a bullet in his chest. And for me to tell this young man to his face that I forgive you was really hard for me. And he didn't know how to take it. He didn't know how to take it as well. Project Numa was documented by Luke Broadwater in the Baltimore Sun. And part of his piece goes into more detail about this shooting. And a couple more things that I learned was that it was two teenage boys. The shooting was part of a gang initiation. The way Broadwater wrote it uh, was when the young man was finished his story, Damien unbuttoned his shirt to show him the bullet wound, looked him in the eyes and said, you shot me and I forgive you. And Broadwater uh, followed, and I just kind of, I love this sentence. He said, 14 years later, Damien runs a program that teaches young boys to do what he once could not. That's what it looks like to change culture. And just like Phyllis Fagel, one of the most important parts of this change is the peer mentoring, a sense of caring first shown to the boys and then carried by the boys themselves. Um, What we did um, last year, back in August, um, we met with the principal, well, the the, the past principal of cross-country elementary school and middle school. And over that summer, he identified for me 20 young men who were on the, on the cusp and verge of, you know, kind of falling off the cliff, you know, as far as, um, you know, educational standards, um, um, always in trouble, those kind of things. But what I did beyond just grabbing those young men, also when to fuse in a group of 10 young men who do exceptionally well to break up some of that group think mentality mm-hmm. so they can also have some peer-to-peer counseling so they can look up to one another and say and see that, hey, look, you know, even though we're in the school together, we can all achieve because it's only, only so much even I can do. That, you know, when another young person speaks to another it's completely person, different. exactly, exactly, they'll take it another way, you know, so, and that's, that's what we do, Dave. 
the biggest part is, is once you build trust with these young people, um, because oftentimes they've heard so many broken, had so many broken promises given to them. But once you allow them to feel safe, they begin to trust you. And then they begin to open up their hearts and they let you know what hurts them. Oftentimes we talk at kids, but we don't listen to them. So we take an opportunity to listen to what these kids are saying. Some things they say we don't like, but we know they have to get off their chest in order to start the healing. Because once they start to heal, they can begin to grow. And then they can begin to replicate that and speak to their other friends about healing. They can go back and say, that, hey, you know, um, there's a Damien, there's, there's, a, there's a C4 here, there's, there's a Dave here who's willing to listen to us and really impart into our lives. Because once a young person understands that you have their best interests at best interest, you got heart, them. You got them at that point. You got them, and that's and that's the thing. But we have to listen. What we're talking about essentially is effective mentorship. And I'm not going to claim to be an expert on that. I'm only 24, uh, but in the experience that I do have, this is critical stuff. So I was thinking about it when I started working on this episode, but it was up in the air. It was a what if. What if Michael had had a group like the one at Sheridan School? What would that have meant for him? But it's not a what if. Because, look, we know what it looks like, even in the most challenging of environments. Since they started Project NUMA, for example, not one of the participants has been suspended. All of their grades have gone up. Their challenging behaviors have all changed. Like they've taken on leadership roles, taken on accountability. Or at Sheridan School where the teenagers, the preteens and teenagers are leading the way and influencing the culture of younger boys, giving them spaces to stay true to themselves and keep lines of communication open. That's effective mentorship. And it's a shift in culture. It's a shift in culture that is carried by educators like Phyllis and men like Damien. But I really think deep down it is and it will be carried by boys like Michael who have reflected on themselves and grown themselves and said, this isn't enough. I got to live with more authenticity, more balance, more connection. This is something that's growing and it's something that's on the minds of the young boys that I work with. This is their time. This is a generation of resistance. My name is Jonathan. I'm deeply committed to facilitating these spaces for boys. One of the groups I started working with last week, before I'd even finished, one of the boys leaned in and said, can we like make it a rule that if someone says something here, no one goes and tells other people? Creating that space for himself. This podcast is supported by NextGen Men, an organization in which these spaces of trust turn into places where boys share stories of mental health and stress, where boys discuss power and privilege and commit to anti-violence. You can learn more about NextGen Men at nextgenmen.ca. Show notes are at breakingtheboycode.com. You can contact me at breakingtheboycode at gmail.com or at Boy Podcast on social media. Ask your boys about mental health today, who they feel they can talk to, what resources they have. Start the conversation, then keep it going.